It's May 14th, 2014, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ran Ozawa, and we cover the Geek Beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. And first, we'll look at a couple of local tech stories, and joining us is Tyler Crawley from the Founders Institute to tell us about the upcoming Founders Lecture. And also joining us is Chad Yoshinaga. He's going to be on the line uh, and he's head of the field operations with the Monk Seal program, and he's telling us about a program over at the Waikiki Aquarium to help save the monk seals. Finally, we'll learn about Makani Pahili, an annual disaster preparedness exercise. We'll hear how the state civil defense and the city's Department of Emergency Management are preparing for a Category 4 hurricane. Have your questions and thoughts as part of the conversation, ready to call in or tweet, but first, the headlines. Well, Honolulu-based startup Makai Biotechnology announced on Monday that it is licensing technology from the University of Hawaii to develop new cardiovascular drugs aimed at treating and preventing heart failure. The science behind the drugs was developed by Alexander Stokes, an assistant professor over at the John A. Byrne School of Medicine, who last year co-founded Makai Biotechnology to commercialize intellectual property developed by UH. Stokes launched the firm with David Watamole, who is also the CEO of life sciences firm Cardax, and previously served as the CEO of Hawaii Biotech. With the license, they plan to introduce a new way to preserve heart health in the wake of cardiovascular disease. Stokes said in a press release, quote, We have a way of protecting the heart with a completely new therapeutic approach. This new therapy will allow the heart to compensate for the extra work it needs to perform without losing function and failing. Well, heart failure is one of the fastest-growing clinical cardiac diseases in the country and accounts for 34% of all cardiovascular-related deaths. Makai Biotechnology aims to focus on what it says is a $40 billion-a-year market. The licensing agreement was handled through the UH Office of Technology Transfer and Economic Development, or OTED, and gives the university an interest in Makai Biotechnology, before taking their drug therapy to market. However, the company must find partners to to progress to human clinical trials. Now, you know, the the interesting thing is that uh, the the pathway, I guess, that they're experimenting with is that this is previously one that uh, they've known about, but they want to apply some of these new drugs uh, to this heart pathway and see if they can actually uh, sort of modulate the activity of a heart that might be potentially going into heart failure. Right. They want to inhibit a specific ion channel that's mm-hmm. generally activated, and they can get it to be activated through capsaicin, in fact, and uh, basically use that. And, and essentially, when your heart is is damaged or has disease, it has to work harder, it gets bigger. So both of those things lead to other problems. So they're saying that in when you're dealing with heart disease, this treatment will be able to keep your heart strong. And I think that's certainly something we want to see. And, you know, just to add, add a note is that uh, we've been trying to get the— uh, um, David Watermill on the show to talk about some of the biotech things that are going on uh, with his company and others. And, you know, I think we'll have them scheduled later on in May. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, this was funded by a million dollars in grants from the National Institutes of Health as mm-hmm. well as the Hawaii Community Foundation. But if it's a $40 billion a year market, hopefully there's some return for UH as well as um, some of the other stakeholders. Now, Scott Nelson, he's a full-time plant pathologist at the UH College of Tropical Agriculture and Human Resources. But You might not get that impression based on his prolific contributions to the world of mobile apps. As Nelson actually previewed on this show last month, the Leaf Doctor app has now hit the Apple App Store. And the free app handles a task that so far has been pretty inexact and sometimes very expensive. 
Well, in order to assess the severity and progress of a plant disease, scientists evaluate what percentage of the leaf's surface area is affected. Even today, after for, uh, and for decades, this percentage is estimated manually and often compared to drawings in books or posted on the web. Nelson noted that one computer-based assessment system available costs $795 and works only on PCs. It's hard to use and not practically accurate or particularly accurate. His new Leaf Doctor app works with the device's built-in camera and performs complex image analysis. But that complexity is hidden behind a simple user interface. The user simply taps on healthy parts of the Leaf image, which then helps the app mask out everything that's not healthy. The ratio of healthy to disease area is then calculated and the image and that percentage reading can be shared or archived. As it is, the app will help plant specialists create more robust galleries that can show the full range of a disease's progress. But Nelson says he hopes to find funding to add even more analytical functions to the Leaf Doctor app. Well, you know, so the previous uh, applications that uh, um, Scott Nelson and we talked about on the show was the uh, Pick a Papaya and the uh, Plant Doctor, which were geared to the home gardener. And this particular one, uh, it's, it's really specific to tell, that tells everybody that it's not really for everybody. It's really kind of for the plant pathologists, researchers, and students who are in the field. But it was interesting what he had said that, you know, in the field, they're basically looking at drawings of leaves mm-hmm. and drawings of maybe uh, holes in the leaf or something. And you kind of compare that drawing and say, okay, that's about 70%. And this, you know, how inexact and how archaic that is. And that a basic app that you can touch and tap and basically calculate what percentage of a leaf is sick, I think that's a... That I do agree that it's going to probably transform the practice. The other thing that I thought was interesting is that when he works on this image analysis, he can see other applications already, like, say, tracking a skin disease and over time, you know, kind of covering an area with the photo, tapping the healthy area versus what's an unhealthy area. So I, th- I think he's onto something for sure. So, so not only for leaf, but for skin, uh, let's say, conditions as well, you know, for maybe humans or, or animals. Yep, that's, that's right. right. Yeah, so it's, a, yeah, it's a kind of an interesting uh, application and it's, it's pretty basic and it sounds like uh, he did it with uh, very you know sort of nominal limited resources. funding yeah, yeah, yeah so it's good stuff and now joining us in this oh actually on the on the uh, line here is uh, Chad Yoshinaga he's actually the head of field operations with the Monkseal program and he's uh, I guess they're gearing up for a presentation over at the Waikiki Aquarium to help save the Monkseal we want to welcome you to the show Chad uh, hi how are you doing good good so uh, you're uh, part of what uh, what Noah and I know uh, you work closely with uh, Charles uh, Littman, right? So, uh, what do you guys have in mind for this upcoming presentation over at <clears throat> the uh, Waikiki Aquarium? Well, at the aquarium, uh, we w- we're going to be talking about uh, new upcoming uh, current technologies, new technologies that we're using to better monitor the Hawaiian monkey species. In Hawaii, now, yeah. Now, a couple of uh, weeks ago, I, I had one of many encounters with the monk seal over at White Plains Beach. But uh-huh. I think more in the news uh, a couple of days ago was video of a family and other people on the beach just messing with the monk seal, completely, obviously, oblivious to both the dangers as well as the legal ramifications of that action. So, I mean, it seems clear that there's still a need for um, public awareness and outreach. But when we talk about technology, um, what, are, what kind of tools do you think might help preserve the monk seal? Well, you know, the, the social media has been a very useful tool for us, uh, both in outreach and um, just just education. Uh, the Facebook uh, uh, that we we uh, 
post a lot of information on current activities of the of the, of the seals on the beaches where they are. Um, we also have a blog site that our volunteers post, you know, locations where the animals are, you know, what they're doing, their nursing behaviors, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so the social media has been very valuable to us. Uh, aside from that, we use a, a, a variety of different technologies. Uh, the the our, one of our longer standing. Uh, pieces of equipment is uh, satellite tags and more recently cell phone tags and we can use these to uh, get really good uh, location data, dive behavior, uh, ocean temperature, those kinds of things that tells us where the seals are foraging, uh, how deep they're diving to, uh, things like that. When uh, when we had Charles on, uh, he talked a lot about the uh, critter cam. Mm-hmm. Is that is that uh, what you're referring to with these uh, tags? Actually, no. I was the, the the satellite tags and cell phone tags are strictly um, providing data. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. critter cams are are cameras, literally cameras that are are placed on the backs of seals, uh, and we can get a video image. Uh, you know, you've heard that a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, can you imagine what a video of where these guys are actually going and feeding, and that coupled with the Satellite tag and cell phone tag data gives us a really good idea of, of exactly where the animals are, what they're doing, how they're feeding, what they're eating, uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I definitely am aware of the uh, the Facebook page, Muxfield Program Facebook page. I think actually when I posted my photo, it got reposted there. Yeah. And, and what was interesting about that was, of course, um, I have friends that are not here in Hawaii, and they're like, oh, they're cute. And, and in any thread, somebody will say, oh, I would love to maybe – pet a monk seal or mm. go up to one. And immediately, though, because of the effectiveness of the outreach program, I think, um, average everyday people will speak up and say, that's not what you should do. You have to keep the certain distance. They're very dangerous. They can harm you. Um, so I think that it's great that uh, you're being you're able to harness technology to engage a community larger than just your staff, for example, to to help preserve them. But one of the things that uh, I had heard uh, when I when I saw the monk seal and I met the wonderful volunteers there was that you know, part of the problem is there's not enough volunteers to cover a pretty large, expansive beach. Um, so in terms of resources, how does uh, technology help solve that problem? And um, how are you still finding more humans to help with the program? Well, that's true. Um, from our, our volunteer network is extensive. Uh, we always could use more volunteers. There, there are eyes and ears out there. Uh, there's no way our staff, our in-house staff, could, could manage to, to you know, cover the areas that they're doing. Um, so we're always looking for more volunteers. Uh, the other, another piece of technology that we're, we're just starting to get into is unmanned aerial vehicles. Ah, yes. uh, these are um, fixed-wing you know, aircrafts, small handheld deployed aircrafts, uh, hexacopters. Uh, you've probably seen some of the videos that have mm-hmm. been posted recently from uh, just, you know, um, on YouTube of, of uh, aerial images of whales and things like that. Um, these, 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 act, these vehicles will allow us to survey larger stretches of areas more efficiently mm-hmm. um, and, more importantly, uh, allow us to access areas that would be either too hazardous or too difficult to get to or too time-consuming to get to uh, for people to get to. Um, you know, one of our big concerns is we don't want to put our, our people at risk, and, you know, some of these animals are, are utilizing cliff uh, cliff ledges, um, right, sea right. cliffs, and things like that. And so having aerial vehicles that can go in and get images, videos, photos uh, of size, uh, identification, you know, uh, natural bleach marks, things like that, is, is going to be very useful for us. So, so Chad, uh, where, uh, give us the time and uh, date of your presentation over at the uh, aquarium. 
Yeah, so we'll be there uh, on May 20th mm-hmm. at 1230. And uh, again, you know, just this is a great opportunity to hear about some of the new technologies that we're working with and uh, hopefully, you know, future technology that we could utilize. Is there a place that someone can go to find more information? Yes. Uh, our f- if you have any questions, you can email directly at monkseal, that's M-O-N-K-S-E-A-L, mm-hmm. at NOAA, N-O-A-A, dot G-O-V. And then, of course, there's our Facebook page, uh, HMSRP, Hawaiian Monk Seal Research Program, HMSRP. And all the information about the upcoming uh, Waikiki Aquarium event is, is posted there. Yes, uh, yes. We'll definitely mm-hmm. get that up on our show notes. Well, thanks, thanks a lot, Chad. Great, thank you. Okay. And, of course... Now joining us here in the studio is Tyler Crowley. He's from the Founders Institute, and he's from actually all over the world. And uh, we're glad to have him here to tell us about a very soon upcoming lecture for startups and entrepreneurs. Welcome to the show, Tyler. Oh, thank you very much. Very happy to be here. Yeah, so, you know, we've been uh, kind of hanging out with uh, Russell, and he's been on the show a couple of times talking about the Founders Institute. Uh, But this is kind of a special thing because you're actually part of a network of mentors that the Founders Founder Institute has across the country and across the world. Across the world, and you have been invited here to talk about. Yeah, Uh, well, the Founders Institute uh, wants to get started in Hawaii, and as part of that, I think they looked into their rolodex of their Mm -hmm. top 100 mentors, or or so I'm told, Uh, and uh, I think I'm told 40 or 50 of them said, "Yeah, I want to come." To the Hawaii one, which is one of the one of the benefits <laughs> of sense. being in paradise. So, is, out of the forty, you got you got the the, the got ticket. The call. I think That's I great. got I got the pole position. I think the, the others will be coming eventually, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm a, the first out of the hat, and um, very happy to be here, having a great time. So, have you? Uh, I mean, you you traveled the world. I'm mm-hmm. I'm almost I'm curious what your last passport stamp was before. Well, um, funnier than that, I, my I just had to get a new passport because I had filled. The passport uh. completely. So uh, my, <laughs> I, I am now working with a brand new double. They when they when you fill a passport, they give you a new one that's double width. Oh, is that right? With double the pages. Yeah. I, I guess I've never gone through that uh, that experience. Yeah. Well, so um, you're you're now here in Hawaii. You've spent yet. Yeah, you'd had a few meetings, I think, with some of the the local community. You met yeah. with the uh, Robbie Melton yep. uh, over at the HTDC. And yep. uh, so you have a, 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 a I think an early understanding of uh, what the startup culture is here. Um, with that in your head, hmm. what is kind of you think the most valuable message you're going to be able to convey when you speak later? Well, there's two messages tonight. Uh, one is how to grow the community here, which is um, the two things I'm most noted for is speaking on how to grow startup communities mm-hmm. around the world. And the other is how to pitch your startup idea or your, or your business idea to investors and partners and, and things like that. So is the uh, event that's happening tonight, is that kind of geared toward the startup community, the entrepreneurial community, or is it geared toward perhaps another another facet of the uh, startup ecosystem? Both. It's that plus people who might have an interest in joining Founders Institute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to give them a little taste of what it's like, I'm here to kind of give them a little taste of what it's like wh- when you join. Um, I go around the world to Founders Institute locations talking about how to pitch. You, uh, mm-hmm. as kind of the pitch doctor, the pitch expert. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And the Founders Institute has like, t- it's a 10-week program. I usually come in around week seven or eight and talk about pitching, but they cover everything, soup to nuts, you know, the, from the beginning to the end. They walk you through the whole process, pitching being just one step along there uh, that I focus on. Yeah, I on. think the Founders Institute has gone through kind of one cohort, right? And, and they've gotten uh, a bunch of companies or startups to go through their mentoring program. Mm. In Hawaii, you yeah, mean? Uh-huh. Oh, that could be. 
Now, um, as as uh, the Founders Institute's most traveled mentor, mm. uh, I, I'm kind of curious that you know we are on, on our show certainly always trying to connect and grow the the, the community as well. Mm. So although pitches are exciting, in fact, next yeah. week our show is going to be talking about business plan competition. Mm-hmm. We frequently feature startup weekend yeah. um, participants, but let's 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 uh, start or for here talk about the, growing the community. Sure, um, it's something that uh, we talk about a lot. I think you met with Eric Nakagawa earlier yeah. today. Well, Eric's, an old, Eric, Eric's an old, yeah, yeah, friend. and that's uh, a passion. Not, not somebody of, that yeah, that's a passion of his too. So, yes. um, what would be some of your recommendations? Well, there's. Uh, there's about 10 key ingredients in growing a community, and there's four of them are critical. And one of those is kind of engineering talent, pe- people to participate mm-hmm. in, in growing it. And um, that's something to, that needs attention here. Others, there's very few cities that have that organically. You know, they have awesome engineering schools. You know, Silicon Valley is one of them. Mm-hmm. Tel Aviv's another. Uh, you can count on one hand the cities that have awesome, you know, pipeline of engineering talent. Um, Stockholm is one of them, uh, where I spend a lot of my time lately. Um, but there's plenty of cities that want to be amazing that don't have that. Sydney, Australia, does ha- really doesn't have much engineering talent. You know, so what are you going to do? And sometimes you have to get very creative. And in their case, it, maybe it's something like allow they have a million Chinese. Uh, nationals who want to immigrate into Australia, and maybe we give preferential treatment to the ones who have advanced uh, education in computer science. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. um, so there's ways to get creative if you don't have it, and there's ways to leverage the the beauty of Hawaii to get people here. Right? Uh, you managed to get me here, so <laughs> uh, that's one. Step number two is a flag, and what I mean by a flag is a social media hashtag that. Uh, represents the community that gets used internally as a hashtag does for everything that's going on internally so that everyone uses this whenever they go to a technology event or there's anything involved with the community, they they stamp it with this hashtag. But that that's very useful locally, but it's even more important in sharing with the world outside kind of a window into what's happening here. Mm-hmm. And this is what we did in L.A. We branded L.A. Silicon Beach. Uh, because San Francisco used to not respect what was going on in L.A. They assumed, nah, nothing's going on in L.A. Mm. And then we showed them with this hashtag everything that was going on in L.A. Everyone went to every party, every event, everything that was going on, picture, 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 photo, photo, photo. And we flooded the social media networks with all of the activity happening in L.A. And they looked at it and said, holy bleep, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on down in L.A. Well, and, and I know that uh, hashtags are a lot of fun, and there's dueling hashtags, there's startup paradise, there's right. high startups, there's startups high. Yes. Um, so finding the one that everyone's comfortable with is certainly going to be... It, it, and, and I've done this in, in Stockholm. We got a room together of, at that point, it was about 400 people and, and voted on it. And I've done it in Krakow, Poland, just did it in Oslo last week, Oslo, Norway, and other places, and it needs to be an organic kind right. of voting mm-hmm. process so people feel like even if theirs didn't win, at least they had they participated in the selection. I feel like that's important for it to stick. Well, Tyler, I mean, that's only two out of ten. Yes. Of well, I'll give you two so. more real fast. Uh, yeah, real fast. Okay. The other two are um, a nest, a physical location where everyone comes together. Kind of a co-working space? A com- but it's a co-working space plus an event space uh-huh. to host events in the evenings. And a meeting place, like a cafe, all together, um, where when people, geeks, get together and they want to have coffee together, it's like, where are we going to meet? Instead of going to Starbucks, it becomes the default place where everyone meets. And when you have multiple meetings throughout the day, a lot of serendipity happens. And that's where magic happens. Um, 
that that to me are the and then the last one is a monthly event a monthly event where everyone comes together once a month face to face and we celebrate and we talk about it and we inspire and educate and entertain everyone on stage and that's something that I do in Stockholm I go back mm-hmm. every month and host an event there called the Stockholm Tech Meetup for 6 700 people each well, month well i'm i'm happy to say that i think we have pieces of almost each of those yes, already and that's it's right. just kind of building that momentum but if somebody wanted to after the show yeah. or during the show make their way to hear your presentation where and when is that taking place uh you might know better than i do it's at the well, I- it's going to be Ilani at Ilani. At yeah. Sullivan Center, uh, which is uh, quite a popular place for innovation and, and a lot of uh, uh, collaborative activities. So that's going to happen like at 6.30 yes. tonight. So I think we're going to let you go and, and uh, take care of that. And I think it'll be a, a great event. And I heard uh, Eric Nakagawa is going to be bringing some pizza down there. So Oh, I, well, we should head, head down there. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, uh, thanks, Tyler, for joining us. Great. Thank you. I'll see you over there. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Doug Main and Peter Hirai to talk about hurricane season. How do we prepare for hurricane season? What technologies could be affected and what technologies could be harnessed? We'd, of course, love your thoughts and questions as part of that conversation as well. So please give us a call at 941-3689 or toll free from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. And of course, we're live here in the studio and you can tweet us your questions at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Take American technology and Chinese money, and you might be able to get some surprising results. I think very few realize that the Chinese government is putting anywhere from 60 to $80 billion a year, every year for the next 10 years, into clean tech-related investments. I'm Kai Rizdal. That story and the rest of the day's business news next time on Marketplace from APM. This evening at 6, following Bitemark's Cafe. Cutting the carbon footprint, for some people, means commuting to work by bike. This Friday is Bike to Work Day, and we'll look at where bike policy is now and how those who use bikes as transportation to work and school view being on Hawaii's streets. We'll talk about it tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozao. And joining us today is Doug Main and Peter Hirai. Doug is the Vice Director of the state's Civil Defense and is responsible for coordinating the state's Disaster Preparedness, Response, Recovery, and Mitigation Activities. Peter, meanwhile, is the Deputy Director of Emergency Management for the City and County of Honolulu. And how are natural disasters something we can prepare for? We always... uh, kind of get into this mode when, as we enter into the sort of the uh, hurricane season. And, of course, we'd love your questions and comments, and that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Doug and Peter, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you very much for inviting us. It's wonderful to be back. Thank you. Yeah, Doug uh, and Peter, you know, uh, it's always uh, great to have you guys on, and, and uh, we sort of have this, maybe it's like our annual uh, you know, preparedness show. We yeah, talk it's about a preparedness show and not an annual disaster. No, no, no. Uh, we yeah. we kind of want to get everybody <laughs> prepared. But, uh, Doug, you know, so June is, is kind of uh, the start of the season. It is. Yeah. The hurricane season runs from June through November. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I know as we enter into the summer season uh, or the summer months, uh, you'll probably be hearing a lot more uh, 
um, I guess, outreach, I guess, activities about, you know, being, getting prepared. But maybe we can talk a little bit about what people should start thinking about. Sure. Well, preparedness is a year-round activity. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, National Preparedness Month is in September. We have Tsunami uh, Awareness Month in April uh, here in Hawaii. Uh, So we're we're doing outreach all the time. but we do want people to be prepared for a disaster. Uh, we're lucky in that we have agreement across all the counties and at the state level that we're to prepare for seven days. So we're asking for people to develop seven days <clears throat> supply of water, food, medicine, uh, cat food, dog food. Um, and, and that's hard. And we, and we recognize how hard that is for people here because mm-hmm. of the expense. And uh, in our case, we live in an apartment. It's kind of hard to – you know, store space. yeah, yeah. To, to store a gallon of water per person for seven days. So mm-hmm. we understand how hard that is, but we really want to take ask every every family, every person that can prepare to prepare for what they can for. Because one you know one person that's prepared is one less person that uh, we have to help right away. Mm-hmm. So one more is one less. So right. That's kind of our goal. Now, of course, Doug, with the outreach activities and the excellent job that I think um, our, our public leaders and community leaders do in spreading the word, on one hand, you feel like some people might start tuning it out because they hear it everywhere. But yet, on the other hand, when a disaster is imp- coming in, um, you see pretty good uh, evidence of people who were unprepared. And so when you right. talk about having seven days, it's something that I've done maybe two years out of 10. Um, but it's something that I've always had in the back of my mind. I'm wondering if you have any strategies that, uh, you know, we one that we were happy with was buying many more cases of water during the summer than we normally do. And then just eventually we start tapping into that until it's right. gone. You don't again. keep it on the shelf, right? <laughs> right, but, right. You know, um, a, a, it's good to have the food some people can afford to have seven days extra supply of food that's set aside that's emergency rations. On the other hand, a lot of people have food in their pantry. And um, so it might not be really great to have a can of tomato sauce that's part of your – that becomes part of your kit. But, you know, if that's if that's what you can afford and that's what you've got and that's what goes with you in your kit, that's fine. We just – seven days of food, seven days of water – uh, having a little bit of cash on hand because we you might not be able to access ATMs, having medication. Do what you can do. That's that's really the – I would love it if everyone would go to the websites and download the three-day list uh, that you typically find on the websites, expand that to seven days, and have everything that's mm. on that that's on that list. Um, but it's a lot. It's mm-hmm. it's um, big tote – you end up with big totes and, and big uh, coolers worth of stuff. Do what you can do, and and everything that you that you can do, that everything that every individual can do, takes that much pressure off the county civil defense uh, agencies or the Department of Emergency Management. Takes it off of of government having to provide immediate relief, and that's the goal is to push out the immediate relief needs as far as we can. So, Peter, Peter, you know, from a from a city and county standpoint, uh, I I think uh, I, I kind of want to get a sense of. You know, Doug from the state civil defense, and then the city and county department of emergency management. Uh, the city has a lot of infrastructure that it has to have, sort of its eye on all the time. Right. How how do you folks, uh, you know, sort of prepare for that? I mean, coming into going into the hurricane season, but even even when it's not the hurricane season, there's all kinds of activities. I think we've seen several uh, tsunami warnings. Mm-hmm. You know, from a from a just a monitoring and and, and um, uh, preparedness standpoint, you know, you got to look at 
all of Oahu right. and, and nearly a million people. Right. And you know what's interesting is we have the crux of the responders at the city and county level and all the neighbor island counties, our police forces, our firefighters, all of the public servants that you see at the city level. But I think what's interesting is that although we have the crux of the responders, I don't think we can any one single agency or one single entity can do it alone. Mm-hmm. And it's fast. It's great that you bring both the state and the city and county here to talk with you folks because we're a team no matter what, whether it's talking on this radio show, whether it's working almost every day cooperatively to determine what kind of needs the state and the county will have even before, during, or after disaster. Uh, it's essential that we keep up those partnerships. And what we often say when we do public speeches or disaster preparedness presentations is that it's not going to be just the government taking care of everybody or just everybody taking care of themselves. It's going to be a team effort mm-hmm. between government, the citizens, the corporations. We're all going to become survivors out of this storm if we ever get another Hurricane Iniki that hits us, God forbid, on Oahu, which affects, of course, the entire state because Oahu provides the entire state with the resources that's necessary. Mm. Comes in from the mainland to Honolulu Harbor, goes to all the neighbor islands. So we're, we're all going to be one team. Now, and, uh, yeah, oh, go ahead. Well, uh, so when you mentioned that uh, it's a community effort, I did want to get into Makani Pihili, which is the uh, statewide disaster preparedness exercise. Now, um, Bert and I had talked about had had con- had it mentioned on the show previously in conversations about it from one tiny part of that community, which was the Ham Radio community, right. which is a pretty ad hoc grassroots uh, organization of people that with ham radio technology want to be able to contribute to help um, pass information around during uh, a disaster and certainly as part of Makani Pihili. Um, So Doug, can you kind of give us a grounding of kind of the history? Because this has been going on for some time. Right. It's we started the annual hurricane exercise after Hurricane Aniki. Um, So it's been going on for about 20 years. And it's uh, it's a big effort every single year. It's always the first week of June, and we have it coming up. I think we're actually – we have some activities going on on May 31st. I think the city mm-hmm. and county is doing some uh, congregate care sheltering activities. But this this exercise as we move forward, we're, as, as Peter mentioned, we have to involve the whole of community. So in the past, uh, disaster response and disaster exercises have been very government-centric. What is the government gonna, going to do? And we're getting away from that now, and we're really trying to get to, yes, government has a role. We have a big role. Um, but what are those other organizations that also have a role from the local community groups uh, that we have a number of uh, across the state? Uh, to the non-governmental organizations, to voluntary organizations. And and so we're trying to bring everybody together, uh, this uh, Makani Pahili. <clears throat> this year, uh, we're including the consulates to work to uh, to deal with tourist safety and mm-hmm. tourist evacuation. Um, and we have the ports, as usual. The ports uh, are also working an exercise a little bit later, but it's all it's all included. We've got about 500 people statewide uh, that are will be exercising as part of this. About 50 organizations. And we actually have people we're bringing in through the Emergency Management Assistance Compact, which is an interstate agreement. We're bringing in people from uh, Florida, California, Washington. Uh, the Commonwealth of the Northern Marianas, Guam, 
and American Samoa. So we have uh, a number of people coming in to uh, to be part of this exercise as parts of our staff. You know, Peter. Uh, uh, you know, Ryan brought up the uh, the ham radio folks, and of course, we we're both uh, ham radio guys. But then there's different kinds of organizational structures within the ham radio community, and and one of them that I think. Uh, works quite closely with the Department of uh, Emergency Management is is the group called RACES. Correct. The Radio uh-huh. Amateur Civil Emergency Service. And and they're actually uh, authorized, I guess, author, an authorized group that has some sort of volunteer leadership that works directly with uh, with DEM. Right. And the RACES, you know, I, I know Ryan mentioned that this is an ad hoc organization, but I just I just want to make a minor correction to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're not ad hoc. RACES is a nationwide organization, but grounded at the local level. You know, we have the state of Hawaii RACES. We also have RACES at every county. And these radio amateurs do nothing, not do nothing. <laughs> but, you know, they, they do a lot. <laughs> they, they do a lot for our community, but they don't expect anything in return mm-hmm. as far as monetary compensation or anything like that. They just love their radios. They love operating on the radios. They love talking to each other, communicating over the radio, and they combine that love with their public service by providing that backbone of emergency communication should anything else go down. Mm-hmm. And, so you know, that public service piece is what motivates a lot of, of, of members of each of these different communities. Uh, the Emergency Amateur Radio Club, I mean, they they think entirely in terms of disaster preparedness. So I can certainly see that piece. I'm curious. So you had mentioned the counties kind of have a lot of the first responders, and you are also kind of the more local node of the, the government piece. How how fine does that get? I mean, uh, do uh, neighborhood boards or, or neighborhood associations even play a part or uh, property managers at large? condominium complexes? Uh, we don't see them playing a part right now, mm-hmm. but we hope to do get them involved within Makani Pahili. We go out and we brief these property owners. Uh, we brief BOMA, which is the Building and Owners Building and Owner Managers Association, mm-hmm. and we've briefed the property owners through that venue at least once a year. So we hope to get more participation from private organizations, just as Doug said, to expand this out not just to our radio volunteers, not just to the community groups. We also have folks, uh, you know, our two largest industries here in the state is the visitor industry and the military, essentially. And those two groups, I think, recently have really, really ramped up yeah. their participation in Makani Pahili a lot over the past few years. And that's really encouraging for us that they're, they care enough to know that their industries are going to be affected and that we need to get back up and running and get money flowing again into the state of Hawaii. So I, I think it's really encouraging to see those two, most mostly either private or non-city, non-state government being involved in Makani Pahili. Mm-hmm. You know, the other uh, the other sort of community-oriented group that is kind of an ad hoc, uh, and I think the um, you know the city's Department of Emergency Management does a lot to bring these folks together it's the cert right the community emergency response team right and and maybe you can give us a little brief on on what that is because you know again we both participated in it and it's an ongoing program to get interested community members to get some fundamental training on emergency preparedness. So you know, what's, the, what's the current state of, of, of CERT? So CERT is the Community Emergency Response Team, just as you said, uh, started in Los Angeles in response to earthquakes. They knew that people would, out of the goodness of their heart, just try to respond to a disaster. 
Now, if we empower the common citizen with a few, with some basic knowledge on how to appropriately respond, then we can minimize their injuries. We can minimize. We we don't want to add to the victim count after disaster with people trying to respond out of their good hearts. And so, CERT was created in Los Angeles because of that. It's spread nationwide since then, since the early '80s. And now, we here in Hawaii, we have a CERT program. Every county sponsors CERT. And it's a 20-hour course. It is geared toward Hawaii. Our cert is because we don't just worry about earthquakes. We have to worry about tsunamis, about ocean-borne disasters like tsunamis and hurricanes. So our cert is tailored toward Hawaii's disasters. And we just want people to take the cert class, take the small equipment that we give them, and they can go about their lives. But if we ever had a large disaster They look around after disaster. They know that their firefighter, their police officer, might take a while to get to them because of the size of that disaster. They can go out. They can help their loved ones. They can help their neighbor down the road. They can help their communities to rebuild after that disaster. You know, one of the things that um, whether it's races or cert, I notice, and it's probably a challenge on the part of uh, uh, DEM, is that you can have. The people certified as as sort of the the races folks or maybe the cert individuals, but it's still a volunteer organization. It's still people get trained, they get their you know get their um, basic uh, understanding. But in order for them to actually activate uh, in an emergency, it really takes kind of an organic uh, sense of organization and almost on the spur of the moment because. As far as DEM is concerned, I mean, you folks don't really have the resources to organize this volunteer group of people, right? We, we do. And what we do is a lot of times we work through organized groups that already exist. Uh, like Doug mentioned that we have these community grassroots preparedness organizations that are specifically focused on disaster preparedness in Kailua, North Shore, mm-hmm. Eva Beach. All of these groups are organizing on their own. And they're using their groups to take the CERT program to take another program that state has started called HARP. Uh, it's a Hawaii uh, Hawaii Hazards Awareness and Resilience Program. Mm-hmm. Right. And these groups are taking those kinds of programs and they're lending their organization to those programs to, to get activated and to know when to activate and when most more importantly when not to activate so that they're not doing more harm than good. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that they have discovered nationwide during disasters is that the vast majority of the help that arrives post-disaster is neighbors helping neighbors. Mm. Um, You look at in Haiti, uh, the Joplin tornadoes, they bring in heavy urban search and rescue teams, but the rescues that they make are in in the dozens or even in Haiti, it was only about 150 people that they rescued. The, the people that are there in the neighborhood that can respond immediately will rescue far more people. And so the CERT program is really uh, – the main tenet is what Peter said, which is we want to give you some basic skills so, so you're helping with the situation because we know you're going to go do that. Right, right. It is very organic. And um, with the advent of the local community groups, uh, Peter mentioned some – um, we're, we recognize that these groups 
are are out there. They want to form. And so through the the program that Peter mentioned that we've started at State Civil Defense, the Hawaii Hazards Awareness and Resilience Program, mm. our goal is to give them a process to develop a plan and a and a process to continue development of what is an organic need in these communities. Mm-hmm. A lot of these communities are going to be cut off. We have communities that are that are served by one road. And if we have a big tsunami, that road's we know that road's gonna be cut mm-hmm. off. So our so our goal is to get out to the communities working with the counties and supporting the counties to work with the local groups and develop um, capacity at the local level so that they understand the risks, they have a plan, they react accordingly, and they know um, who needs help, who's got resources, and they can all help each other. Now, Bert and I both went through uh, the CERT program, and I can see that. You will naturally want to help if something happens in your neighborhood, but you don't want to, for example, go into a damaged structure and end up being part of the casualty rather than a rescue party. Correct. So, and to be perfectly honest, um, that's one of the, the crown jewels of that training program <laughs> is you get to go into a simulated um, disaster structure without lights, with smoke, and try to find people and assess whether or not you can rescue them. So right. I think we'd certainly recommend uh, recommend that. Well, I, I want to get into talking more about some of the technologies involved in disaster preparedness. When you talk about communities getting involved, I think immediately of social media and people tweeting about what's going on and how that can help or hurt people. But uh, we'll continue that conversation after a, a very short break. Uh, we're talking to Doug Main and Peter Harai about natural disaster preparedness exercises. And of course, how do the different agencies interact with each other? We'll explore that when we come back. And of course, we'd love to hear from you. And that number to call is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Catherine Ann Jones, author of Heal Yourself with Writing. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about self-healing through writing and a deeper dialogue with the self. Sunday morning at 11. The CIA and their military establishment was very much concerned that the communists had found techniques for brainwashing. Does anybody want to go home? On the next Radio Lab, one man's attempt to safeguard national security backfires. I'm Jad Abumrad. Join us for the next Radio Lab. Saturday morning at 10. And welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Doug Main and Peter Harai about interagency coordination during an emergency. And, of course, how can the community be more prepared? Of course, you can call us here at 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, you know, we are more kind of interested in this sort of exercise that is coming up, Makani Pahili, we've, you know, we've all sort of heard about it from the community standpoint. And I, I might add that I have been involved kind of directly as an on-site uh, planner for Makani Pahili this year. So I'm, I'm getting sort of the first-hand view of what Makani Pahili is all about. But, you know, prior to that, uh, we heard about it. We heard about some ham radio activities that were going on. But, you know, they were somewhat... Um, to me, like separate activities, like maybe the ham radio guys during the Makani Pahili exercise would go out and do something. 
Um, but being inside and seeing the extent of the interagency relationships that are now unfolding in preparation for this uh, this June event, it's it's pretty um, amazing to me because what uh, what I had perceived before has totally been sort of changed and, and thrown out the window. I mean, when when this exercise, uh, when I got involved with this exercise, uh, it was a coordinated effort between all the different jurisdictions. So we're talking about Kauai, Maui, Big Island, Oahu, at the city, uh, no, county levels, right? All doing the same exercise or doing um, an exercise during the same period and then having civil defense also be a part of the exercise. Everybody's sort of doing their on-the-ground activity, and things may be pushing up to civil defense. So civil defense got uh, you know, their EOC activated, and they're waiting for all the calls to come in. So I guess what I want to start to explore with you folks is you know, this exercise. What goes into actually planning this exercise? So you know, we, we, we often talk about planning, and people should be prepared with a plan. But when an actual big disaster happens, like, uh, like uh, a hurricane uh, Category 4, when you talk about plans and you want to exercise those plans, what does that really entail, Doug? The uh, the, the exercise it's you you kind of ask two different questions. We we have planning, we have response planning, which are our uh, emergency operations plans, our catastrophic disaster plans, and that's a that's a planning process that is a little bit different than planning for the exercise. Now, if we talk about exercise planning. Um, uh, we at State Civil Defense and, and Department of Emergency Management both have a, a full-time person. Uh, actually, I have a full-time person that just does exercises, mm-hmm. and she is she is very good. She's just finished up as a master exercise practitioner. Her name is Jenny Howlett. Ha- uh, shout out to Jenny if she's there. Um, but uh, she is uh, she's she spends her entire life planning exercises. And we do four exercises a year. So we have the Makani Pahili exercise, which is our big full-scale exercise, which involves the counties. Um, and, and, and we start planning for that as soon as one's over and on June this year, Lynn, on June 6th. On June 7th, we start planning for the next one. And her job is to is to really corral all of the cats and dogs that are out there that want to participate. And our goal is to get everybody to participate as possible. And and the and the way we view this exercise is we will provide the overall um, scenario for it, and we will make sure that the scenario makes sense. But the the participants, each of the participants has different objectives that they want to achieve. So, for example, one of I think one of DEM's objectives is to look at congregate care sheltering this year. Right. So we have to make sure that the the exercise is is done in such a way that they can reach their objectives. Mm-hmm. Because if they don't reach the objectives they want to reach, they're not going to come back and play again. So, so it's really uh, Jenny's job is really to make sure that everybody out there is conducting planning on their own for their own individual venues. So the congregate care shelter is a venue. DEM uh, D, uh, Department of Emergency Management will will open up their emergency operations center, and they have to make sure that they have enough inputs coming in to keep them busy, so that's a venue. We've got search and rescue going on, I think, again, at uh, the Regional Training Institute over at Bellows. Um, so uh, that will be a venue. And and so you have 50 or 100 venues that all have to be sewn together to make sense. They have to they have to make sense in time and space of, of where they are during the, during the disaster and, and when they're happening. And you have to tie them together through uh, through means so that the information that's coming out of there drives to um, 
drives the emergency operations centers at the local level, but also at the state level, mm-hmm. because we have objectives too. Right. And and the states, my my job, our job at the state level is to support the counties, mm-hmm. and that's what we do. We support the counties. The counties tell us, wh- you know, what they need, and and we provide that. You know, we're talking to Doug Mean at the State Civil Defense and Peter Harai from the City and County Department of Emergency Management. And uh, we're talking about uh, getting prepared for our hurricane season and uh, Makani Pahili. If you have a comment or question, feel free to give us a call. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. And we want to welcome Dave from Kapolei to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Uh, hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, I have a quick question. Um, I didn't. I haven't listened to all of your program, but um, I tuned in a few minutes ago, and it's not clear to me: is there a role for community associations, and if so, how would a community association get involved in uh, an upcoming uh, preparedness and response exercise? That's an excellent question. Good question, Peter. You want to tackle that one? Yeah, we we have different community level. Preparedness organizations. Uh, you said you're from the Kapolei area, Dave? Right. Yeah, we, we have one out at Eva Beach, and they may be able to partner with your with your organization out there. Um, if if you want to call me, uh, how, do, how do we get well, out Well, um, you know, Dave, I mean, we, we, we'll post some information on our show notes uh, later on tonight. And, okay, uh, right. you know, if you want to... Email us. Uh, you can email, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org, and I'll, I'll uh, email you the uh, contact info for the uh, folks over at DEM. Okay, but uh, but if nothing else, uh, I can check with the show notes, and I should be able to get the information there, right? You got it. Yep. Thank you very much. It's very helpful. No, very good. that's a great call. And the reason and the reason why I'd ask, ask, I'd ask that question is I live in Mililani, a fairly large community, but it does have an association that has the benefit of good communication with its residents and such. So it would seem to me that um, that next level is a good one to explore for sure. Right. Definitely. Well, you know, and, and I think to Dave's question, uh, how do community associations get involved? And there could be a number of ways of, of getting taking that first step. I mean, I would recommend and Peter, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, at a at a basic level, you should get some of the community association members to take cert, as an example. I mean, that's kind of one step. Definitely. Uh, the other the other thing to consider is that, you know, when when these exercises come up, the uh, congregate care exercise that's taking place on the uh, May 31st, uh, it's kind of too late to get involved right now. But that typical that's a typical exercise where uh, the uh, Red Cross is actually going to stand up half a dozen congregate care centers across uh, the island. And, you know, that's a good time to kind of tap in and see if there's a, a need for volunteers to perhaps man those congregate care centers. And it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a Saturday. You have to give up part of your Saturday. But, you know, you go out there and, and basically go through the process of standing up a, a shelter and, and seeing what kinds of uh, potential things need to be done, you know, in the event of an emergency. Right. And when you say congregate care shelters, just to explain a little bit about mm-hmm. that concept, what happens is after a hurricane or after a destructive event, if you go back home and find out that you don't have a home to go back to or that your home's not livable, then Red Cross, in partnership with the county, with the state, with all of our partners, we will open up and provide some place for you to have safe shelter until you can get back to your home or get your home rebuilt again. And so I, I think that's an important distinction to make be- between that mm-hmm. and a hurricane refuge shelter, 
which is pre-hurricane if you need some place to go before the storm to seek safe shelter from that storm. Mm -hmm. So we have pre-hurricane refuge shelters and we have post-hurricane congregate care shelters where we'll feed you and, you know, they'll provide some basic needs for medicines, food and water. Now, Doug, I did want to talk a little bit about technology. We did talk about ham radio, which is a a, a venerated and a classic um, form of technology and communication. But uh, not to to get on a theme here, because I think I asked a question about this uh, last week as well. Maybe you might sense an obsession here. <laughs> but I'm also really into drones, uh, unmanned aerial vehicles. <laughs> and when you speak with people who are interested in that as a, as a, as a path, as an industry, um, disaster preparedness is actually on the very short list of things that they feel um, this technology, which is becoming more accessible, um, can contribute to. Is that something that uh, the, the state is looking at as a tool? Or um, do you already have resources in place for aerial surveys, for example? Well, we, ha- we d- do already have a capacity for aerial surveys. So we have uh, live streaming video pods that we have put on Civil Air Patrol vehicles. We Mm -hmm. have the National Guard has a number of uh, systems that also live streams. So we do have a a capacity that we utilize now. Um, And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty good. We always want to try to build capacity. Our, the, the issue with unmanned aerial systems right now, uh, UASs or unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs, is that the, the flying of them in restricted airspace is, is problematic. We're, we're not, quite frankly, I don't think the FAA knows if they can control right, them or not. Right. I mean, that's a huge issue right now. Um, we're, we're supporting uh, University of Hawaii's uh, work with the University of Alaska on developing a UAS test range and, and uh, working through the complications at that point. The, the need that we have for emergency management purposes, in, in my view, is, is we need long duration, um, lo- kind of long distant, longer distance unmanned systems than typically what we see a, a lot of the a lot of the vendors that come to us uh, bring systems that are fine but they typically have a, a kilometer to a kilometer and a half range they can go up to about 500 600 feet um, and, and that's good for certain tactical applications mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you know what I need is something that we can put up that can fly all the way all over Oahu in one go and and send back uh, geocoded um, uh, video live live stream and and so that's really the technology that we're trying to get to but uh, we are interested in in the UAVs and 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 trying to develop to assist the state agencies that are looking at that in in, in developing it we're we're not going to turn our nose up at anything that will help Absolutely. and and I guess that's really where we go you know Peter uh, for the uh, Makani Pahili exercise I think uh, the first uh, maybe uh, half day, at least from 8 to, to 2 o'clock, there's going to be kind of a simulated uh, uh, power out, no commercial communications, uh, basically, you know, no phone service. Uh, what would be some of the alternative means of communicating if, if uh, uh, you know, from, a, from an EOC standpoint, you're needing to find out what the situational uh, uh, analysis might be? We have uh, two empty soup cans and a string <laughs> attached in between. <laughs> now that's technology. <laughs> no. Uh, the key to our success is usually redundancy, what we call redundancy. And redundancy just means to have other means of communications in place, 
practiced, exercised, and comfortable using them in case telephones go down, in case the internet goes down. What else do we have that we can use to communicate between us and the state, between us and the field forces mm-hmm, like the police? Mm-hmm. And we already talked extensively about ham radio. We have satellite phone technology. Using anything, again, that can be redundant, that can replace something that could go down. And that's going to be the key to our success is practicing those redundant systems so that, again, we are comfortable with the pause that you might see with a satellite technology. You know, um, one of the things that I find uh, I found quite fascinating about this exercise and planning for it. I mean, and and, and you're right, Doug. You know, there's there's all these exercises that uh, your exercise uh, and and uh, training officer, and of course, uh, Hiratoya uh, at the DEM is is another full time, and he's d- doing an excellent job. He keeps, you know, he's he's like on a full time sort of. Uh, state of readiness, uh, you know. He's, he's our energizer bunny, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But uh, uh, when we when we do these exercises and we do these simulations, and there's these things called injects, right? And so, a lot of it is is kind of uh, predetermining what might happen in in this uh, uh, sort of disaster scenario. And I thought it was an interesting process of going through the, and creating all these injects. Right. What we want to do is not just take our plans and say, oh, you know, we got it. We know what we're doing and just pat ourselves on the back. By putting these injects in, we can re- gauge our reactions and judge how sound our decision-making process is, not just knowing what to do, but knowing how to arrive at the decision on what to do correctly. Mm-hmm. And perhaps if we don't know what we're doing, then we need to go back to the plans, mm. look it up, and say, oh, that's how we're supposed to be doing it. So these are like scenarios that you might not necessarily know are going to come up, and you just have to address them when they do? Exactly. Mm. Having that flexibility, having just exercising that brain power and that common sense to say, this is the right decision to maximize life safety and to minimize property damage. For the geeks out there, I would say it sounds like a really cool game of Dungeons and Dragons. Exactly. It's, it's very much like that. So, and, oh, yes. I, I, one, of the, and one, of the, one of the pieces that we're trying to drive to is uh, we want to try and, and overload the systems so that we get to failure. Right, right. You know, because if we just practice easy stuff, then, <laughs> it, then you know, we pat ourselves on the back and we drive on. So we so want to jam it and break it. Real quick, uh, website we can go to? www.oahudem.org, oahudem.org. That's okay. the city and county's website. And Doug? www.scd.hawaii, spelled out, .gov. Okay, well, we'll put that up on the show notes. Doug Main is the vice director over at the state's uh, civil defense and Peter Harai is the Deputy Director of the Department of Emergency Management. Thank you both for joining us today. Appreciate the time. It was wonderful to be here, as always. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week and we'll talk about the business plan competition and some of the participants and winners at the Scheidler School of Business. And, of course, if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. Or you can find us on Twitter, Bert's Bite Marks, and I'm at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's our talented friend from Hawaii Tech Works, Tony Marzi, and a song called Pale Blue Heart. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.